You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I'm talking to Bill Limebeck. He is the director of Walkabout to Hollywood, which is a documentary about David Gupalil. If you are a fan of Australian movies, like myself, you have probably seen Mr. Gupalil in quite a lot of films. He is a very familiar face to Aussie film fans, and this was a documentary that Mr. Limeback made back in 1980. I think since then there have been two other documentaries about Mr. Gupalil done as well, and I'm hoping to get my hands on the latest one, which is just hitting Australia right now. Hopefully we'll be able to get a copy of that and speak to the director, because I find this subject matter to be really interesting. I hope you enjoy the interview. From what I understand, Walk About the Hollywood was your first feature documentary, and I'm curious how you got interested in making docs. That's not my first. It was probably my fourth or fifth. I'm from San Diego originally, and I went to film school in London, and I married a, an English lady, and, and then I stayed there for 10 years. And during that 10 years, I sort of was like the lone guy making films about tribes. Uh, and I made a film in Amazon. I made one in Borneo. I made one in uh, New Guinea. Yeah, we, had, we actually had a film called Roundee that was uh, Oscar nominated for Best Feature Length Daco. Uh, and it was the best film in, of Brazil. And that was in 70, 76 we made that one, 77, 78, something like that. So we went into uh, to make a film about Round E. Uh, we went in with 35 mil gear, right? And there was five of us. We got dropped in by the army, and they said we'll be back at this spot in four weeks. So the army dropped us into. They landed in this little um, upper Shingu airstrip. Now we're talking about 40 years ago, right? 45 years ago. They reluctantly dropped us in there because the French guy knew them. And so anyway, they reluctantly dropped us in, but we had no communication anything with the outside world. And they'll be back in one month to pick us up. So we were going to make this feature film about one of our guys, one of the sound recorders who was going to play this colonial who goes in there and finds a tribe and tries to befriend them. And it was all about first contact. But he was such a shitty actor and they just couldn't get it to work. But in the meantime, Rowney came to the fore and we got to know Rowney and he used a big lip disc. He's the guy that Sting befriended who went back in years later. He's a big, big, big lip disc. Rowney was his name. And he travels all around the world representing the American Indians of the South, South American Indians. Rowney, R-A-O-N-I. He wanted to know all about this colonialism and land rights and everything. And he became quite politicized 
in our month there, and we wound up making the film about him. And that's why it's called Rowney. And in fact, we brought him, uh, he, when we left, he wanted to come with us in the plane. We flew, had to fly back to Brasilia. And within 24 hours, he was arrested. We were all, I was kicked out of the country. Jean-Pierre, my partner, was a Brazilian, Brazilian resident, so he could stay. But they confiscated the film. They put Rowney in a cell because he was not a citizen because he didn't have a passport. Can you believe that? So Rowdy became quite you know, politicized in any, any way, but Jean-Pierre got the film stock back. I came back and got Amnesty International onto the case from London, and eventually Jean-Pierre got all the film stock back. And then on the first Concorde that flew out of Rio, that was French Concorde, and Jean-Pierre being French, he persuaded the pilot to fly him out with all the film stock, and so he went back to Paris and edited it. And then a year and a half later, they were at Cannes, and Brando was there as well with his film. And Jean-Pierre went up to Marlon on his boat. Marlon Brando was always in, interested in the Indians, right? So he said, I love this. He showed it to him. He said, I'd like to do something about it. He said, well, we want to do a, we want to incorporate American Indian awareness as well. So Brando said, okay, well, let's do the long march. So the opening of the film is Brando at the end of the long march in Washington. He was big and fat at that time, and he covered himself with a blanket. <laughs> He's sitting on the grass, and he looked really gross. But, you know, he introduced the film, and he narrates it. And with that, uh, you know, we got an Oscar nomination. I can't remember who won that year, but anyway, it's the best future made taco. But anyway, because of that, the Brazilian government, who, who kicked us out, they wanted the film back because, whoa, they were all proud. Our Brazilian film is now Oscar-dominated. So they invited Jean-Pierre to play the film down there. It became the best film of the year. And Rowdy came back out of the, the jungle and came back down into Sao Paulo to the opening night, uh, filmed down, and there he was up on the stage to introduce the film. And he's in Brazil because he could speak Brazilian Portuguese. And he said, hey, my name is Rowdy, and that film is called Rowdy. But I say the same thing as that film says, that if you come into our land, we'll kill you if you don't have permission. And they did. You know, they said about uh, about three months later, they killed 22 um, farmers who were cutting logs in their, into their land. And, and so Jean-Pierre then got... Uh, Stern Magazine, Perry Match Magazine, European magazines to go down and cover the story. And they and they saved the Rowdy's tribe from being wiped out because the government was just going to wipe them out with sugar bombs with uh, lace with arsenic, you know, in retaliation for killing 22 Brazilians. But uh, because uh, Jean-Pierre rallied those big magazines, the number one magazines in Europe, that uh, basically the government did a negotiation with him and uh, they all got off scot-free. <laughs> but the message was there. And the demarcation, that was a great thing, that that film helped to demarcate that land. Before, it was just uh, on the map, it said, there be dragons, you know, on the map. It was, couldn't say, this is indigenous land, stay out. It was just, there be dragons. Anyway, I migrated down here in 79. I migrated from London after 10 years there. And I had wanted to make a feature film on uh, the tribal world, especially acculturation, when one tribe uh, envelops another, when one civilization encounters another. Colonialism, you might call it, you know. But I was always looking at the fourth world as that world within the third world, tribes. I love tribes. 
So when I got out of film school, the first film I made was in in New Guinea, and I made a film about the disappearance of Michael Rockefeller, who was the son of the American vice president at that time. Anyway, so I got a bit of a reputation with the BBC for making those sort of things, but I got a little bit, oh, I don't know, I want a tired of Docos. I wanted to make a feature in that same world. So I wrote this script called Philip and Benny Long, and Benny Long was the first Aboriginal that was taken as a pet by the first government they got here in 1788. 1,400 people arrived in 11 ships in here in Australia. And the governor, his name was Philip, he was the commander of those ships and he became the governor. And he was here for four years. And he took Benny Long back to London with him. And Benny Long lived there for four years before brokenhearted. He, was, he, brought, he came back. And so anyway, I came down here with that script and it was just too big and too expensive. There was before CGI. So you couldn't, you, know, you had to build ships and you had to build houses like that. You couldn't have set extensions with green screen and that sort of stuff. So it was too expensive. But anyway, by that time, I had already befriended David Goupil because he was the obvious choice to play Benny Long. He had already done four films. I befriended him and he came to me and said, listen, Bill, why don't we do this film of mine called Billy West about an American cattleman who drives cattle across Australia and he brings with him his American wife, who's an Indian. And so we tried to get Billy West up and I said, well, why don't we make a doco while we're trying to get the feature film up? And that's what's happened. That's how the doco came to be. And he just happened to be going to L.A. because... He was in a small section of a film called The Right Stuff about the astronauts, first astronauts. And anyway, David was in this part where the Aborigines are sitting in the desert in Australia, and they're looking up and seeing the thing going across the sky, and they talk in language. But they didn't want to come down here, so they sent David up there. They did it in the Mojave Desert with David and three black Americans pretending to be Aborigines sitting around a fire in that Mojave Desert. David had a little bit of money, and it was urban cowboy time at that time. John Travolta was urban cowboy, so everything around L.A. was cowboy boots and hats and western shirts, and David went wild and filled up his uh, luggage with all of that stuff. And we had a good time, and, and everybody in L.A. wanted to talk to him and wanted to see him. He had four films playing in L.A. at that one time, four films. He had his first one, Walkabout, his second one with David, with uh, Dennis Hopper, Mad Dog Morgan, he had Storm Boy, and he had one with Richard Chamberlain called The Last Wave. And they were all playing in L.A. when we were there. So he was the most popular Australian at that time before Brian Brown, Mel Gibson, Kate Blanchett. Before those names were ever known, David was a famous Australian in, in America. What were those first meetings with him like? What was he like as a person to get along with and work with? He's just unbelievably good in front of the camera, and he loves to act. And I, I, he gets bored by all that in-between stuff that is filmmaking, that waiting and setting up and all that sort of stuff. He gets impatient with that. And, uh, you know, if he's not in the scene for two or three days, you might lose him because he gets uh, impatient. I go walk about and say, you know, just goes throwing away. And, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of filmmakers have had trouble with him because... You know, he's pretty well uncontrollable. 
And, you know, and also, like, when you think that he made his second film when he was only 18, uh, he made Walkabout when he was 16. And then Dennis Hopper came down here, and Dennis was, you know, just out of, out of easy rider days, you know, and he had a jacket, and one, one half of the jacket was a Jim Bean bottle, and another half of the jacket was a bag of grass and some cocaine down here. And, you know, there was this 18-year-old Aboriginal kid getting a full... A full introduction to the Western world of acting, yeah. So you know, he he got coffier and coffier as it went on, but he always goes back to Arnhem in between, and they they put him in his place. You know, he when he's back there, he's just another Aborigine, and and, and he has a job outside. He brings home money. In fact, when we came back from that trip overseas, we went to Arnhem Land, as you can see in the movie. And he drove back in the Land Rover that he gained from a job that he did before he went. And he got this Land Rover and drove it back full of all that urban cowboy stuff as we went through New South Wales and then Queens and then up the Northern Territory. By the time we got to his place, which is in the tip, tip, tip of the Northern Territory, he had only a pair of Levi's and a pair of boots, no socks. And that was it. He had no shirt, no hats, no anything. He had given them all away. Once he got into the Northern Territory, that was his place. Because the Northern Territory of Australia is like, uh, there's only 200,000 people who live in there. And, and half of them, 100,000 are Aboriginal. So it's the most uh, intense Aboriginal part of uh, Australia. And he feels so home at home there. Even before he gets into his reserve, which is Arnhem Land, he, he feels right, quite at home and privileged, but everyone's always hitting on him, all his relatives or friends. Hey, David, can I have hey, can I have this hat? Hey, can I have these boots? And David, 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 can I have these, you know, Levi's? And, you know, he just gave everything away. In fact, when we went back, finally back to his place, he even lost the Land Rover because it got bogged in the last river that we went across. And we stayed there for that whole rainy season until it dried out again and we could get it out there. He could get it out the next year. You know, he definitely is in two worlds. Tell me more about this idea of you working with this uh, fourth world. I'm very curious, how do you approach these folks and say, I want to make a movie about you? Each time it's different. Every situation is different. You know, when we went to looking for the Rockefeller story, it was basically how can a tribe like this who has this reputation of headhunting and cannibalism, how can they produce the finest art in New Guinea and the second only to uh, West Africa in the tribal world? You know, they're fantastic art. And then you go in there and you find that that art is all based about the killing and they have to kill somebody in order to produce this art or they produce this art when somebody's killed. And that I got into because of the missionaries who were there and I went into them and t- uh, talked to them, and I was the first one to go in there since Rockefeller had been killed and eaten there some 15 years before. So everyone's different. When we went into the Amazon and we made Brownie, I was with a French guy called Jean-Pierre who who had made a film about that tribe, but, you know, just a light doco uh, for, the, for the BBC. But we went in to make a feature talking with 35 mil. We're the first guys to make a 35 mil film in the Amazon. You know, we made it on a three to one ratio. We went in three hours, three and a half hours of film to make an hour and a half movie. So we had to be very judicious in what we chose. But in doing that, we made Brownie into a, you know, political. He became very politicized 
as did David. When we took David to America, he got into American Indians. He thought he was going to get into the American blacks. He thought he was going to identify with them. And we set him up with a meeting with Muhammad Ali. And we had, we went to uh, one of their, they have this thing on Thursday once a month in LA called the Black Journalists. And they come from all the newspapers and and the press and everything. And when they get into the nightclub, it was a disco at that time. Disco was a big thing. And it was just like Lagos or something. You know, I was the only white guy in there. And David was just uh, the hit. And, and uh, Muhammad Ali and David, right? But by the time he came out of there, he realized that it wasn't the blacks. that He, he didn't really have any identification with the blacks because far, as far as he was concerned, they were just Americans, you know, colonial Americans. And, and David is of the soil, you know, so... As soon as he met the Indians and he could share the same same things about Mother Earth and their soil and only borrowing the soil and not owning it and all that sort of stuff that is similar with all the places that have been colonized, the indigenous people. So he, he's an indigenous person. The American Indians are indigenous and he got that right away. You know, and he fell in love with the Indians. And they fell in love with him. He performed, these were city city uh, Indians too from the outskirts of Los Angeles and the hills around Los Angeles. And leftover tribes, when David is a real tribe, when he did dancing in the dirt around a fire, uh, they were just, their uh, jaws dropped, you know, they'd never seen anything that real before. I love that scene of him with that belt that represents all of his uh, relatives and all the hair that's been braided together. That is just amazing to, to watch him explain that to some of the native Americans. Yeah. Isn't that good? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and, and see Buffy St. Marie was going to be the leading lady in his Billy West film that we were going to make together. We were going to co-direct. That was a great idea that he, he was going to direct all the Aboriginal parts. I was going to direct Buffy and, Max Gale, we chose Max Gale. In fact, it was Max who has a teepee on his land and American Indians who are passing through the Los Angeles County area. They wind up at Max's place and he gives him some food and that sort of thing. And he's an in-between. He's not Native American, but he's a the spokesman for, but mainly, you know, the political ones, you know, the wounded knee ones and that sort of thing. Well, David's not really that political. Yeah, you know, not before he went to the States anyway. He got a little bit of a knowledge about, you know, struggle for your land rights and that sort of thing. Up to that time, David really never thought twice about it, you know. We had a thing down here called a 10BA where you could borrow, you could uh, get money and investment in, into a film and the investors would get 150% write-off. And it was a big, big, a brand new thing that came on and it wasn't quite legislated enough for us to make the film, uh, but we went and spent a lot of money on building sets and all of that. At that time, you could you could start a film with dribblings of investment. Nowadays, the rules will change, and you can't start a film down here until all the money's in escrow. But at that time, we built some sets, and we got some Aboriginal extras, and we got wagons from the period, and cattle, because we set in 1898. And then they didn't legislate this 10BA by the end of the fiscal year when accountants want to utilize it. So it collapsed. And so we're going to put it together for the next year. 
And, uh, of course, the fires go through that area every year, and it just burnt out. We had a mission station. We had a corral. We had a church, all those sort of things that were going to be pivotal in the film. They were all burnt, burnt to the ground. And so we lost openness, and uh, investors lost about a quarter of a million bucks, and we had to abandon it. And then oh, I went out to other things, and David went out to other things. Sort of burned me out, so I left it. How was Walkabout to Hollywood received? It was primarily for the BBC. I made it for them. I mean, they, they bought it, commissioned it, and, uh, uh, and it played down here on the ABC. played for two or three times, really. It gets picked up every once in a while, Dave. It's 20th or 40th birthday or something like that. But Umbrella have now uh, enhanced the negative, cleaned it all up, cleaned up the sound, and now it's looking really beautiful after 40 years. 40-year-old film shot on 16 mil. It's looking very, very good. So nobody's done. It's been in the archives for a long time, but Umbrella have bought the rights to redistribute it on Blu-ray. So they've spent a bit of money on cleaning it all up. And it's coming out because Umbrella uh, Entertainment is also re-releasing the film that David made with Richard Chamberlain called The Last Wave. So they're re-releasing that that film. So he thought he'd re-release that one with mine and then it just so happens that we're off to here is releasing is in the same month so it's a David Gupolo's on the newspapers everywhere now which is good you know because he doesn't have a long time to live and he wasn't that famous in this country as he was over there not until his latter years I tell you when he became more famous here is when he, he had a film that won the best actors award at the Cannes Film Festival about oh five years ago, another country or my country, I think it was called, and he got the best best actors award at Cannes Film Festival, and then you know that's pretty prestigious down here. He achieved a bit of notoriety then, but people are just starting to know. You see, but also the thing is, he was such a frontier. He was on the frontier. Nobody had done that before. As you see in my film, uh, he's the first guy who's not a blacked up white to play Aborigines. Up to that time, people just blackfaced and did it. And, and nobody thought a second about it. But David then started playing parts outside of just an Aborigine. He played, you know, in Last Wave, he plays a city Aborigine. Uh, in Storm Boy, he plays a beach, beach bomb. So, but he plays other parts besides just being a native Aborigine. So he started the whole run. Now in Australia, the indigenous theater and indigenous film and TV world is amazing now. I mean, some of the best films are coming out made by uh, indigenous people here. They've got the run at the moment, run on the boards with the most awards and, and the, the most looked after and looked at television for sure down here. And David was on the frontier of all that. He inspired a lot of the Aborigines, that's for sure. After you were done with The Doc and then Billy West, did you two stay in contact? Yeah, yeah, we stayed in contact. And he'd always say to me, uh, what do we got to do, Billy West? What do we got to do, Billy West? And I'd say, okay, well, well, we'll get around to it. We'll get around to it. Yeah, you know, he just got busier and busier. And um, I just didn't, I, I don't know, I went out to other things. I didn't really want to go back there. Yeah, and, and also the appropriation thing was starting to build up, too. You know, that thing about what's a, a honky white American Guy, gonna, why is he making a film about Aboriginals in Arnhem Land anyway? You know, so I mean, I couldn't do that film now. I mean, Ross 
Rolf's making a documentary about him, which is fine, but I don't think Rolf could go into Arnhem Land and make a film, a drama film. I mean, there's so many Aboriginal directors now. We've got about six of them who are, you know, just as good as any any uh, non-Indigenous directors now. You know, they're just they're just so good. They're very clever in, in their depiction of themselves and of us whites as, as well. They're very, you know, and they have a great sense of humor. I'm talking about the contemporary stories they do, not just the, you know, the old Westerns, but they're, you know, doing contemporary Australian drama and really just a fresh angle on it, for sure. You said you were pretty burnt out after Billy West burnt up, really. What did you end up doing after that? I went into the world of, of, of the Asian world, you know, because I'm always, I mean, as an independent filmmaker, you're always looking for avenues to get financed. And I find that I have found over my 40 years of making films that if you can get a group on board that identifies with what you're doing, then you can get access to money. Like my uh, feature, feature film, my, my last feature film I made about uh, a miner, coal miner, who went to the first uh, first world war as a, as a digger would dig under the trenches so they could blow up the Germans from underneath. And I made that in Townsville, which is a mining town. And the story came from one of their founding, well, not one of their founding fathers, but one of their heroes. And so, you know, I was able to touch the mining millions that are up there and, you know, and found a, a group of people who I could then build uh, relationship with and, and made this their own and you know the town got behind it and now it's the only feature film that's ever made in that town and they dine at it they've been dining out on it for eight years you know and it plays like once a month in their local cinema and all that you know and we raised 10 million dollars in that town and i tell you after after uh walkabout i went into the chinese community because i wrote a script with somebody else called white pirates in chinatown and it was about some Vietnamese who migrated down, who you know smuggled themselves into Australia and got busted on their boat just before they arrived here. And it was a smuggling, uh, you know, it was refugees, Vietnam refugees. And at that time, the Vietnam, Vietnamese were the refugees who were trying to get into Australia. Unlike now, where it's the Iranians and the Afghanis and the Pakistans and, and the Burmese. But at that time, it was the Vietnamese fleeing from the end of the um, uh, war there, the war with Vietnam. And so they were trying to get in. So that, I, I touched the, the Chinese community, and uh, they helped me develop it, and they helped me finance it. But the Chinese didn't approve to be um, that liquid, with, or they didn't want to get involved in anything but bricks and mortar and rice. They weren't really into the arts that much that they wanted to take a risk on a $10 million movie. So I spent a year doing that. And then, you know, I moved on, just kept doing that. And every once in a while, I'd go into, you know, make another taco and then I'd develop another film. And, you know, i just been developing. Now I develop with other people. I help people develop. I'm more of a consultant now, even though I've got three projects on the boil now. Uh, I'm not doing any docos, but people come to me with advice about how to finance or is this budget going to be appropriate for this film or could I have a read of the script? And so I make a little bit of a living uh, as a consultant to independent filmmakers. How has the uh, pandemic affected you? It hasn't affected me at all. 
I'm in developer, you see. So it, it, developers are having a field day because we have time to write. We have time to talk to, you know, investors. We have uh, everything's done on Zoom. And uh, by the time my projects are, are ready to go, uh, this will be over. I mean, we're, we're almost 100% clean down here now. But people have been making stuff. But only if they can really afford the expense, like uh, Nicole Kidman's doing something here, you know. But, but she has to bubble the whole crew. They have a lot to stay on a property, and she has to look after them and uh, pay the expense. And they're making a sequel to, uh, you know, Big Little Lies. The Hemsworths are doing something, again, you know, bringing down us uh, Americans. But they bring them down on a private jet, put them in a bubble, and that sort of thing. So... But there's also a protocol. I think you have it there. Well, you probably have to wear masks still, but we don't have to wear a mask while we're shooting down here, as long as you keep the 1.5 distance. So there's not a lot of sex scenes happening. There's not a lot of kissing, and there's not a lot of crowd scenes. You know, people have adapted to it, and the, the industry is just coming back to life. You know, I'm in TV series now. That's where it's all at. You know, you'd be silly to still be making feature films as an independent filmmaker. So uh, in long, the long form is where it's at, the miniseries, the eight-hour miniseries. That's where the actors seem to be going, the best directors are going, the producers are going, the Netflix and Stan and um, Amazon and uh, Acorn. I'm doing something with Acorn at the moment. They're a British streaming company. So the streamers are the kings. When I was making Beneath Hill 60, 10 years ago, the kings of the industry were the uh, sales agents. If you went to Cannes or you went to Toronto or if you went to Berlin, they they were the kings and you had to kiss their ass. And the first question they ask is, who's in it? They don't say what's the story or what's the script, who's directing They say, who's in it? Uh, And nowadays, who's in it's not so important. It's more the story and... um, Starting to get star studded now. You know, you'd have to have a star now in your in your series to get aggregated. But uh, you know, that's where it's at. That uh, long form. But people enjoy it. People like to spend more time getting into the characters and watching the various subplots develop and that stuff. I, I love that. Bill, is the best place for people to keep up with you and your work over at LuckyCountryProductions.com? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, uh, you can see the two latest ones I'm doing uh, are. Um, uh, I'm doing one in Vanuatu. Well, when you ask me if the pandemic is stopping me, uh, stopping me from going out to Vanuatu. In fact, in fact, the Vanuatu picture is called Gardens of War, and it, it was inspired by one of the docos that I made. Uh, it was inspired by the making of uh, the Amazon film I made called Rowney. So that inspired me to make a film about making a film in the uh, fourth world. So I set it in Melodesia. I set it in. I wrote the script, and I set it in um, in New Guinea. But New Guinea is pretty hard to make a film in at the moment. They got a lot of tribal violence there. So Melanesia, you got Melanesia, you've got the Solomon Islands, you got New Guinea, Fiji, but you also have Vanuatu. Vanuatu is a lovely place. It's a population of about two hundred and fifty thousand people in eighty two islands, and uh, they're lovely people. And so. I've created a, the setting there. And it's a fictitious island group, but an Australian crew go there with an American director, a woman producer. She hires an American 
director, a bit like myself, I guess, at that time, who was well-known for his films. But when he gets into the tribal world, he realizes, God, this is just a bit boring, this land. We missed the first contact. Why don't we try to make a feature out of this, you know? Get these people to go back into what they look like, get their old costumes, or take off those radio shirts and take off those shitty trousers they got from Red Cross and and get some war paint on and let's make a, a, a real script and write the script right here right now so he entices her to do that and then all shit breaks loose and, and uh, he got bad buyers on them and they create a tribal war for the first time in 30 years and they're in the middle of the tribal war and of course she says we gotta get out of here now oh god we're gonna get killed he said no way this is Oscar winning stuff We've never before seen a tribal war like this, you know, we'll stay until the crew get in uh, in a fight, and there's six of them in the crew, and so half the crew wind up on one side of the tribe, the other half on the other side of the tribe. Uh, so, yeah, it's called Gardens of War. And uh, so, anyway, I had to pull the plug on that and plug it back into 2022, because we ain't going to make it this year, that's for sure. Bill, thank you so much for your time. This was great talking with you. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Bye-bye.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.